and to grow and and that's not necessarily a, a bad thing but what becomes a bad thing is the approach that many of them use to get the growth now most places are going to somehow tell you that they get everything they get from the book I and mean, we just go by the the truth we make that same statement but you know the thing that is so scary in the time that we live in is that there's a lot of the truth that is in that book that you never hear proclaimed in certain places and you know it's the difference between being evangelical and being a neo evangelical a neo evangelical is a guy that you'll never be able to fault his doctrine not one iota you're never gonna listen to that guy and say you know that's a that's against the Word of God nope he'll be just right on down the line but there are some things that he won't say that's how you recognize a neo-evangelical and listen it's easy for me to recognize them because I used to be one you know what when I became your pastor you know what hey let's don't make waves you know there's a that's a big book with a lot of truth there's no sense going to you know some places gonna ruffle people's feathers but, you know, I'm cruising along through the Word of God and also found out that my responsibility is to preach the whole counsel of God. It, it's, it's a big book of truth, and there's a lot of the truth that's in there, just to be straight up with you, that the culture that we live in doesn't want to hear. And I do want to just assure you this morning, if you're a guest with us, man, we, we're absolutely thrilled that you're here. But we also want you to know that we're not going to bury truth today to try to make you happy so you'll come back. We'd love for you to come back. But we do want you to understand that the issue in this place is and will always be truth. Unadulterated and just put out there. And again, I don't want to be offensive in the way that, that I communicate it to you. But if the truth does offend, then you'll have that. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to the book of Revelation, speaking of not being confrontational at all. Revelation, we're going to be in chapter 14, but you might as well just go to Revelation chapter 3 because that's where we're going to begin. Now, what I want to do this morning, because uh, last week was, of course, Easter, and we invited some of our, our guests that were here last week in our Easter services to come back and join us. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to just try to get our bearings before we get into to chapter 14 this morning. And we're just going to take a quick glance. This is at the top of your study sheet. A quick glance into God's prophetic calendar to understand where history is right now and where it's heading. And first of all, you need to understand where we are right now, where we are right now. And I'm going to just give you one word to capsulize all of these things so that we can move through this pretty quickly. The first word is a word that you'll find in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And I'm telling you that so you can cop the spelling of it. But the first word is the word Laodicea. Laodicea. You see it there in verse 14. And let me quickly explain to you what I mean about us being in Laodicea as far as where history is on God's prophetic time clock right now. Okay, now... For some of you folks, bless your hearts, I hope that at this point you could come up here and you could spell out what Laodicea is. That ought to be about 90% of you. Now there's another 10% of you, I throw that word out and you're just absolutely clueless about what that could even possibly mean. Now just check it out real quickly, okay? Get the flow of this thing. 
In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, our Lord writes seven letters to seven churches. Put into the context of the whole of the book of the Revelation, what you find out is those seven letters represent seven periods of church history. Now, we have a history book in the New Testament. In fact, we have several. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gives you the history of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. After he ascends to the Father, the book of Acts comes along, and it gives you the history of what was taking place after that through the Acts of the Apostles. You come through that history book, and you're done. That is, if you don't understand Revelation chapter 2 and 3 put in their context, because the history picks up an outline form in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and where the book of Acts leaves off in the history, here comes the seven letters providing you an outline of everything that was going to take place through the entire church history, through the entire church age. Now, the thing that's so important about that, I'm not telling you that just so we can all go, well, isn't that cute? The reason I'm telling you that is because we are living right now in the seventh and final period of church history. And we don't have the time this morning, but what we have done in this church is we have taken literally years to walk through Revelation 2 and 3 to show how they provide an outline of the history of the church to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are in fact living in Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 to 22 in that seventh and final period. We entered into that period in 1901. And chances are real good it's going to end in the very, very near future. In fact, I, I believe we're living right now in verse 22. Look at what it says. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In, in other words, I believe what God's saying is, Y'all better recognize, you better wise up, you better be listening to what the Spirit is trying to say, what the Spirit is trying to communicate. Okay, so that's the seventh and final period of church history. Then the next event on God's prophetic calendar is an event that is capsulized in one word, the word what? Rapture. Rapture. And what you find, as soon as the letter to the Laodiceans is completed in verse 22, you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, and what happens in chapter 4 and verse 1 is heaven opens, there is a voice, there is a trumpet, and somebody on the earth who pictures the church of Jesus Christ is caught up into heaven, and what it is is exactly what is spelled out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Because in that passage, where it is detailing for us the rapture, what it tells us is when the rapture takes place, heaven is going to open, there is going to be a voice, there's going to be a trumpet, and the believers in Jesus Christ who are presently living in Laodicea, that's us, all of those who genuinely know the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be caught up off of the earth to be removed and banished from this earth to be caught up with the Lord. And we find that in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And the result of this, the next point on your study sheet, the result of this event on the earth, and I couldn't really find the word that really just capsulized it. This is not the best word. I don't know what the best word is, but as far as I'm concerned, maybe the best word for today is desperation. Desperation. Listen, when this event takes place, fear, panic, pandemonium, 
absolute horror is going to grip the people of this planet. And you can just imagine this morning, if you're here today and you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, and again, this is what I'm talking about. We're not, we're not trying to mask the truth, and yet by the same token, I'm not purposely trying to freak you out. But just imagine this morning that this event, the rapture, takes place today. I mean, within the next 10 minutes. And there are people who at least to pro- profess to know Jesus Christ all around you in this room this morning. Can you imagine sitting in this room and all of a sudden, hundreds, a thousand of the people in this room, bam, gone. Can you imagine? I mean, do you think, well, Marge, what, what do you think about that? That was pretty slick, wasn't it? No. I, I mean, you, you are in your worst nightmare right now. You'd run out of this place so fast, and as you do, you would be hearing sirens and alarms and everything going off because this event is going to be global. It's going to affect the entire world. There's going to be catastrophes by the thousands, planes dropping out of the skies and, and, and buses and cars and all kinds of things that are going to be taking place. And immediately, what's going to take place in the financial realm of, of this world is that the markets are going to go absolutely under and and nobody's going to know what to do. Nobody's going to know if this thing's going to happen again. And nobody knows, has this been an invasion from another planet or, or whatever? You know, people are just absolutely freaked. They're freaked spiritually. They're freaked mentally. They're freaked financially. They're, they're, they're freaked in every way they can possibly be freaked. And what Satan's going to do at this point is Satan is going to, with all the willingness in his heart, he's going to soothe men's hearts at that time. And how's he going to do that, folks? One word, Antichrist. Antichrist. And we meet him in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, if you'd like to just glance there. He comes counterfeiting the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes on a white horse. He comes with a peace agreement, an arms agreement. He's chilling everybody out. This dude, according to what we've seen throughout the Word of God, He's got answers, and man, everybody wants to hear what this guy has to say. But he is Satan's man. The biblical identification of this period, when the Antichrist arises on the scene, the one word is what, y'all? Tribulation. Tribulation. There's other places in the Word of God, like in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, where it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, of course, being Israel. The time of Jacob's trouble. In Daniel 9, 24 and 25, it's referred to as Daniel's 70th week. He he received a vision of 70 weeks of years. 69 of those weeks were fulfilled. And then there was... That, that the, the, the prophecy was put on hold at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sixty-nine of those weeks clicked along. Daniel 9, 24 and 25 says, at the, the cutting off of the Messiah, we ended that 69th week, but there's still one more week of years, a seven-year period of tribulation that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21 that there's never been a time such as, uh, this time was not such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. In other words, 
There's never been a time like it before it, and there's never going to be a time like it after it. But what's interesting is even in the tribulation period, and, and do recognize this, that right now, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the ones that God is using to get his message out to the world. We are his servants, if you will. We are his, his witnesses. And even after he removes us, God still wants to get his message to the ends of the earth. But everybody who knows or knew the Lord Jesus Christ has been removed. And what we find at that point is Jehovah's true witnesses during this period are going to arise. And this is a group of people that we refer to biblically as the 144,000. Now check it out. According to Revelation chapter 7, once we're removed and the Antichrist has been revealed, and the tribulation period has begun, what is going to take place is God is going to select 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to be his special witnesses, to carry his gospel to the ends of the earth. These are the 144,000. And that's where we are in Revelation chapter 14, dealing with this group of people called the 144,000. Now, let me take everything that we've just talked about as we've just got this panorama of, of the book of Revelation and where, how we fit into it and where the things are going to be heading in the near future. And, and let me show you how these things tie into the context of Revelation chapter 14. The context of chapter 14 is the tribulation period. We picked up this, this context all the way back in chapter 12. But what we found as we've been studying the book of Revelation together is that what God does in the book of Revelation is after the rapture takes place in the book of Revelation there in chapter 4 and verse 1, what God does is he brings us on a journey through the tribulation period, which of course culminates with the second coming of Christ. He brings us through that event or those events for individual times. The first account of it we saw was the opening of the seven seals in chapter 6 and verse 1, or chapter 7 and verse 1 to chapter 8 and verse 1. Then the second account is the sounding of seven trumpets, chapter 8 and verse 2, all the way through chapter 11 and verse 19. And then the third account is where we are right now, Revelation 12 through 14, the revealing of seven personages or personalities. And then, of course, the fourth account that we'll be getting into in the next several weeks is the pouring of seven vials. So what he does, he takes us on this journey through the tribulation period four different times, through the opening of the seven seals, through the sounding of seven trumpets, the revealing of seven personalities, and the pouring of seven vials. Now, when chapter 14 opens, now this is it's coming into where we are right now. When chapter 14 opens... The 144,000, and remember who they are, they were God's special witnesses to carry his message to the ends of the earth during the tribulation period. And at this point in Revelation chapter 14, they have been raptured to heaven. They are no longer on the earth. When we saw them in chapter 7, man, they're witnessing all over the earth. But when we see them here in verses 1 through 5, they've already been raptured to heaven. John says in verse 1, that he sees them in the Mount Zion. Now, when chapter 14 closes, 
the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth in judgment. And that's verses 14 through 20. Okay, and verses 14 through 20 is an event that's referred to as the second coming. The second coming. Now let me take just a second to make sure that we all understand the difference between the rapture and the second coming because there's lots of confusion. Even people that have been around here continue to make mistakes when it comes to the difference in these two events. Note this. The rapture. The rapture ends the church age and ushers in the tribulation. The second coming ends the tribulation and ushers in the millennium. And that's that thousand-year period where Christ will rule and reign on the earth. So the rapture ends the church age and ushers in the tribulation. The second coming ends the tribulation, that seven-year period on the earth, and ushers in the millennium. Okay, at the rapture, Jesus returns in the, what? In the clouds for his saints. That's the event that we're anticipating. That's the event that we're looking for this morning. At the rapture, Jesus returns in the clouds for his saints, 1 Thessalonians 4. At the second coming, Jesus returns to the earth, what? With his saints. Good. All right, so now where we are, okay, I've shown you that in, in Revelation 14, at the beginning of the chapter, 144,000 have been removed from the earth. They're on the Mount Zion. They're in heaven. In verses 14 through 20, the Lord Jesus Christ has come back to the earth. Now where we are in the middle of this chapter, in verses 6 through 13, is what John is having revealed to him is God's last call. To lost man. God's last call to lost man. And this will most likely take place in the final few months or even days of the seven-year tribulation period. So do you understand where we are? Seven years of the tribulation period have almost been completed. There's just a little bit of time, several weeks, maybe several days. It's hard to say, but we're right there at the very end of this thing. And what, as God gives this last call, what John finds out is God gives his last call through four voices that he hears. Four voices that he hears. And we looked at the first voice the last time together, the voice of the first angel. And this is in verse 6. And the voice of this first angel has a message concerning belief. A message concerning belief believed and we looked at what the scripture says here about the message that he has to communicate John says and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach and we saw first of all the message he has to communicate is eternal in its significance we don't know how it's gonna happen we don't know what it is the people of the earth are actually gonna hear as this angel begins to proclaim his gospel, but we do know this, number two, it is universal in its scope. He says, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And the point here is that the fact that the angels have watched for the last 1960 whatever years it's been since the Lord Jesus Christ 
gave the commission for us to go into all of the world and preach the gospel. He has watched all of us in the Laodicean church period. He's watched us in the last week squander opportunities that God has given us to to give the gospel. He, he has watched through the years as God continues to open doors to, to allow us to go to the world. And he watches how rather than walk through those doors, we get ourselves so caught up in the things of this world that we've lost the perspective of reaching the people of the world. And here this gospel, this angel finally gets the opportunity and he with great passion begins to proclaim this gospel. Let's look at the communication of his message. We saw, first of all, it involves conviction. He says with a loud voice, verse 7, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And what we've noted is all through the tribulation period, folks, the Antichrist has been saying, Fear me and give me glory, or I'll bring judgment upon you. We're in the last hours now of the tribulation period. And this angel says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And all the way through the Word of God, God keeps talking about a day of judgment, a day of judgment, a day of judgment. This angel is saying, The hour, not just the day, the hour of His judgment is come. It's imminent. It can be at any moment and it's a message of conviction the hour of his judgment is come it involves conversion I mean we can get all get real convicted about the judgment of God but the conviction of God is to lead us to conversion to give glory to him and not only that it involves consecration he says and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters and of course salvation always has at its root bringing us into a worshiping relationship with the true God the Lord Jesus Christ so it's a message of conviction conversion and consecration and that's the voice of the first angel and the message that he proclaims concerning belief now let's look at Roman numeral 2 the voice of the second angel the voice of the second angel and his announcement concerning Babylon his announcement concerning Babylon. The first voice he heard was a message of an angel proclaiming, uh, 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 proclaiming a message concerning belief and now an announcement concerning Babylon. And we'll look first of all at the word of Babylon's fall. The word of Babylon's fall. And look at verse 8 with me if you would. Verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Now, let's just stop there for just a second. Now, if you've been in this church for uh, probably the last four or five years or so, you're pretty dialed in already to what this great city of Babylon is all about. But let me just give us a, a crash course. A lot of the folks here don't have a clue as to what Babylon is about. Let's see what we know here. First of all, the beginning of Babylon is recorded in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 where a man by the name of say it good job y'all a man by the name of Nimrod and the name Nimrod say it with me means rebellion and this man according to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 9 
was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And as you trace the usage of that word before, what you find out is he is a mighty hunter. Anybody remember? Good job. Mighty hunter against the Lord. And what this mighty hunter, whose name means rebellion, is seeking to do is he's seeking to set up his own, his own kingdom. And that kingdom is called Babel or Babylon. And now listen. From the time Babylon is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 10, all the way through the whole rest of the Bible, Babylon will always stand for that which is in opposition to God and his people. It's consistent all the way through. So, okay, now let's put this thing together. Here is a king whose name means rebellion, who's seeking to set up a kingdom on the earth using men who will be against God, who will come in opposition to God. Now, for many of us, it has a, a real familiar fragrance. Because what we find in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14 is that before Adam was ever placed in the garden, there was one that God had placed on this earth, and this is clearly spelled out in Ezekiel 28, 13, a being by the name of Lucifer, who of course would become, he would become Satan. And what he does is he has a throne that is on the earth and he is leading beings who are called sons of God to worship God and praise God and love God and, 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 and give him glory. And there came a day where iniquity was found in him. He became a king of rebellion who wanted to set up his own kingdom on the earth and have people worship him. Okay? Now listen. Genesis chapter 10 and 11 is all about that very same thing. Satan now empowering a man on the earth to do the same exact thing that he had done in eternity past. And when you get into Genesis chapter 11... What you find is that this kingdom of Babylon has two key components. It was both, uh, somebody know? Anybody know the two components? Okay, you're going to the representation of that. Good job. A city and a tower. Okay, and the city represented, and this is what you guys, you guys are already going to the answer, man. The city represented the governmental or political aspect of the kingdom. And the tower represented the religious aspect of the kingdom. And that tower, of course, according to Revelation 17, 5, is the mother of all of the harlot or false systems of religion in the entire world. And the thing that you need to understand this morning don't ever let this out of your grasp, folks. And if you're a guest with us, you need to make sure that you hear this. The system of religion that originated at the Tower of Babel, you find that thing all the way through the Bible, right up to today, and right on through the tribulation period. It is still among us. It's still right here. But in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8, at this point, check this out now. After all of the centuries and centuries and the millenniums down through history, at this point, the second angel proclaims, Babylon is fallen! It's fallen! Okay, now, now just think for a second. 
Why does he repeat that? Why does he say it twice? I mean, why didn't he just say Babylon's fallen? Well, there's several reasons, okay? Anytime that God repeats something, he does it for emphasis. In fact, in John chapter 3 and verse 3, when he talks about the need of every single one of us to be born again, you remember how Jesus began that? How? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, get this! This is important. Emphasis. Verily, verily. Babylon is fallen. It's fallen. So it's a way to emphasize a point. And yet, listen, don't you know that the angels of heaven have been watching what's been going on in the earth and how this false system, this harlot system, this tower of Babel religion has captivated the people of this earth for centuries and centuries and centuries. And now, after all of the centuries, after all of the millenniums, this angel finally gets to proclaim it. And listen, when he gets to proclaim it, it's not <clears throat> uh, Babylon's fallen. Uh-uh, buddy. This is excitement, man. I don't want to do it. Like that angel's going to do it. But Babylon is fallen! And, and you don't, you know, when something significant like that happens, you know, you, you don't just say it once. It's fallen! It's just the exclamation point on that. But even more than that, remember, Babylon has those two key components. Okay, now remember, she is a religious system. And, and now listen. And will be the one world church of the Antichrist, which according to Revelation chapter 17, is also a city that is set on seven hills whose colors are purple and scarlet. And, and now listen, I, I promise you, I'm not trying to be offensive to you purposely, but shame on me if you came to this place and we go through all this detail about Babylon, and the fact that it's going to be the one world church of the Antichrist, and I don't give you the truth. Revelation 17, and if you want to hang with us for just a few more months here, we'll get into Revelation chapter 17 sometime. But, but now listen, you need to understand that one world church of the Antichrist, that false system, that mother of harlots, that is the Tower of Babylon on the earth today, according to Revelation chapter 17, is the Roman Catholic Church. And again, that is not, we're trying to, you know, shoot at somebody. All we're trying to do is just let you know there is something major that is taking place on this earth. That system this morning already has blinded one billion people on this planet. Check this out. One out of six people on this planet is a professed Roman Catholic right now. And in just a few years, if you're going to survive, you will become a Roman Catholic. Because that is the woman, according to Revelation 17, 5, that rides the beast. So now, and the point here, okay, what, what we're seeing here, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And at this point, the religious system falls but not only the religious system, but also the governmental and the political and economical empire 
of the Antichrist. And so the angel says, Babylon is fallen. It is fallen. Both the religious and the governmental aspects of the kingdoms are, are fallen down. And we'll get into that in detail in chapter 18. But at this point, what you need to see is that God is finally going to unleash His judgment upon Babylon. And the reason for His judgment, look at the rest of verse 8, is because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And this is letter B under the announcement concerning Babylon. B, the wrath of Babylon's fornication. Okay, letter A was the word of Babylon's fall. Now B, the wrath of Babylon's fornication. And God wants the entire world to know why he's unleashing his judgment upon Babylon. And look at the way that he words it again in verse 8. Because she made, count them, all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And listen, you can go all over this planet today, and you'll find them everywhere already in just about every nation. But in the tribulation period, because it is the one world church of the Antichrist, she will have made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, I want you to turn back with me, and we'll be back to Revelation 14 momentarily. But turn back with me, if you would, to the book of Jeremiah. That's in your Old Testament. If you get back to the Psalms, you've gone too far. Work your way back over after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 51. Okay, now, the, the context of Jeremiah 51 is set for us in verse 8. Now, y'all help me. I, I know that some of this is a little heavy. Are you guys, you with it? Everybody feel like you're tracking? We're on the same page and all that deal? Okay, cool. Jeremiah 51. Okay, and the context is set for us in verse 8. Okay, look at the, look at the way that this is worded. Jeremiah 51. I'd love to get there. And verse 8. Check it out. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Okay, now this is prophesying what we're seeing and are talking about in Revelation chapter 14. The destruction, the falling of Babylon. But I want you to look with me at verse 7. Jeremiah says, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. Okay, now, now look at the last part again. The nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. Not as in angry, but as in crazy. You know, we say somebody's gone mad. Crazy drunk, if you will. Okay? And if you look back at chapter 50 for just a second, he'll tell you what Babylon's wine was that made him mad. Look at verse 38 of chapter 50. Jeremiah says, speaking of Babylon, a drought is upon our waters, and they shall be dried up, for it is the land of graven images, watch this now, and they are mad upon their what? 
their idols. Listen, that's what Babylon's wine was. Idolatry. Just jot down this reference and listen, we don't have the time to go there. Isaiah 21, verse 9. Isaiah 21, verse 9, listen. It says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Again, Babylon's wine is what? It's idolatry. What God calls spiritual fornication. And that fornication is what is ultimately going to unleash God's wrath upon Babylon once and for all. That's what Revelation 14 is letting us know. And again, we're, we're going to see that wrath poured out on Babylon in detail when we cover Revelation chapter 18. But you know what? Let, let's just cruise over there real quick and let me just give you a little indication of what it's going to be when Babylon comes falling, falling down. Revelation chapter 18. Okay, now the angel makes the proclamation here in Revelation chapter 14. But remember, we're going to go through the tribulation period for another time when we finish chapter 14. 15 through 19, we're going to go through it again. And then we're going to get the blow-by-blow blow of what's going to take place when Babylon falls. The statement, and it takes place back in Revelation 14. But this is the detailing of it. Look in verse 1 of Revelation 18. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Do you see? Every time that you see that thing showing up, it's fallen, it's fallen. And it's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In other words, they've all become idolaters. And, and the king of the earth have committed fornication, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. There's the commercial aspect, the religious and the commercial aspect of the thing. Drop down to verse 7. How much... She hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and live deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off with the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Drop down to verse 17. For in one hour... I mean, here is this, this great system that has been used to dupe the entire nations of the world. In one hour, so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster, and all the company in ships, 
And sailors, and as many as trade by sea, stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein we were... Uh, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by the reason of her coastline uh, costliness for in one hour is she made desolate rejoice over her thou heaven and ye holy apostles and prophets for God hath avenged you on her and a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea saying thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. Babylon, at the end of the tribulation period, is going to be cast down just like this. And we'll go into detail on that when we get to chapter 18. So, the, the first angel comes. As God begins to give his last call to the earth, the first angel comes and he has a message concerning belief. The second angel comes and proclaims an announcement concerning Babylon. And now in verse 9, go back to chapter 14. Now in chapter 9, or verse 9, John hears the voice of the third angel. And he has an incredible warning concerning the beast. The beast. And the warning has to do with the destruction of those who deify the beast the destruction of those who deify the beast d-e-i-f-y and for those of you that may be younger deify means to make a god out of okay and what we're seeing is the destruction of those who make a god out of the antichrist look, look at verse 9 john says and the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast, or the Antichrist, and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And what you have here, folks, is the principle of whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Babylon is going to seek to seduce people in every nation of the world to drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And what God says is that everybody who drinks of it will then be made to, make, or to, to drink the wine of the wrath of himself. And notice according to verse 9 that in the tribulation period, Drinking of Babylon's wine is described as worshiping the beast and his image. There's that idolatry that we've been talking about this morning. Drinking of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 9. Worshiping the beast and his image and receiving his mark in your forehead or your hand. Okay, now let me explain some things to you here. Okay, in the book of 2 Thessalonians... What it tells us, and we saw this earlier this morning in Revelation chapter 6. Do you remember when the tribulation period begins, the Antichrist comes on the scene, and here is the world in this utter desperation, totally freaked out. And what we find here is when the Antichrist comes on the scene, 
It's all about peace. It's all about answers. It's, and he's got them, man. And he dupes the world. He, he gets this, this arms agreement with, with the nation of Israel and the, the Arab nations and all the conflict that's going on over there. He, he's, got, he's got an answer for all of it. And he gets everybody all settled in, and he gets his prominence, he gets his place, and everybody thinks that, man, this is the greatest guy in the world. You know what? The Savior has finally come, and that's exactly what they think. And according to Revelation chapter 13, what is going to take place in the very middle of the tribulation period, remember what's going to happen? He's going to receive a head wound, and he is going to fall down to the ground and all the world is going to be looking at at their savior who is dead in a bloody mess with a hole in his head and all of a sudden while the whole world is just grieving over this thing all of a sudden as the cameras zoom in on CNN and TBN and all the others get that this afternoon as it zooms in what you're going to see is that thing is going to heal and he's going to resurrect and what we saw according to Revelation chapter 12 at the end of the chapter there is he is going to be inhabited by somebody who is that Judas Iscariot's coming up from beneath as Satan comes down from below and in that body of the Antichrist, he is going to resurrect. And at that point, his true colors are going to be put on display. And what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is he is going to walk into the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He is going to come into the Holy of Holies, and he is going to proclaim himself to be God. He will erect an image of himself, and every person on this planet is going to be forced to worship that beast or some representation of, uh, of that, that image that, that is there. They'll be forced to worship it, and in worshiping it, they'll receive the mark of the beast. This is the infamous 666 that you've all heard about. And it's spelled out for us. Look in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. In verse 11... <coughs> John says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spake as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him. This is the false prophet, referring to the Antichrist. And causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles to the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name and what he's saying here is that at that point in the middle of the tribulation period now he's been the this glorious savior all along but at that point once he resurrects man he knows these people follow me into anything 
once I've risen from the dead, once I've counterfeited the event that we celebrated last week, I got him. And what he does is he says, now, all of you who will follow me and worship me because I am God, in order to buy or sell, you're going to have to receive a mark. The mark of the beast, the 666. There's all kinds of speculation as to, to what that mark of the beast actually is. But, but listen, folks, do you understand that right now, I'm not, I'm not talking about this is something that is, is going to be coming in the future. I'm talking about right now. There is a, a very minor little surgery that's done with just a, a little injection where they inject into your forehead, right above the hairline, and on your hand between your knuckles, a little, a little chip. And they can find you. It, 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 you see, it's great for kids. Really, because you see, when you when you you have a baby, and the world it gets continually more chaotic and, and and devilish, you know what? If somebody steals your baby, wouldn't it be nice to be able to find out at any moment where they are on this planet? You see, through this little chip, that oh, it's a five-second procedure. Now, now listen. Some of you think I'm absolutely nuts. Do you understand this? They've already gone public on the stock market there's people in this room that own stock in it it's it, you know what it's a good one we know where this one's going y'all it's going global <laughs> it's going worldwide and, and, and now now listen that's just a settled fact that's not it, now this next little deal all I'm telling you is what I've heard, you know, don't go out of here and, you know, make this the issue of, of the, the deal. We had our Bible conference a few weeks ago, you know. One of the pastors that was here stayed over and is a key player in the, the Russian uh, Inland Mission 2001. And we had a meeting on Thursday. The con our conference ended on Wednesday. We're, we're up uh, in the, the youth wing and... And we're talking about Russia and its prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the, the things that we know are going to be taking place in Russia in the very near future as they come upon the nation of Israel and God comes to Israel's defense. And so I'm talking about the importance of us, you know, getting into Russia while we can, you know, and, and that's the way we end the meeting. We, we had a word of prayer and one of the pastors says, you know what? I, let me just share this with you, the wildest thing. He says, our youth pastor's wife, the guy's name, the pastor, Rick Camperson, Gwinnett County Baptist Church, just outside of Atlanta. Rick Camperson says, just last week, our youth pastor's wife had a baby. While she's in the hospital, the nurse comes in and says, don't let them put that chip in your baby's forehead or, or hand. Now, again, now this is not the mark of the beast, what I'm trying to tell you. The chip is already there, it's inserted, and you never even know that it's there. It's harmless. Now, obviously, it's gonna, you're going to have to get reprogrammed in order to receive the mark of the beast. Don't worry. You know, if you, you know, got this little deal for your kid or something, or that, you know, somebody in Atlanta did that, it's not like the kid is doomed to hell. I'm just trying to tell you something. It's here, y'all. It's here. 
And, and so the, the, to, to, to do whatever you're going to do, to buy or sell or whatever, you've got to receive the, this mark. This is uh, kind of wild. Um, I, I, the, the school that I graduated from in, in Miami, one of the, the families in our church was down there, oh, about three months or so ago. And uh, they were in my home church, and everybody's passing around a tape from one of the guys that graduated from the same school that I did that was talking to the people there about what he's involved in. And you know what he's involved in? This chip. This is what his job is. He went to his pastor and said, you know what, we're doing this little chip thing, and we're trying to get it to where, you know, everybody has got their own code and I'm, I'm knowing exactly where this thing is going, and should I do this? And the pastor says to him, well, if it ain't you, it'll be somebody else. You might as well go ahead and be involved in it. And, and what he begins to explain on the tape is that this 666, is this the way that it's going to be? I don't know. I'm just telling you, what this guy is communicating is that what they're doing in this thing is there is a, a system of using three numbers that have six digits in them. The first one are the six digits of your birthday. For example, my birthday is February 20th, 1957. But when I write that, I write it 02-20-57. You've got six digits in your birthday. That's the first six digits. The second one has to do with your Social Security number. Now, my Social Security number begins with 261. I'm not going to give you the rest of them. I'm afraid y'all go out and charge up a bunch of stuff on some account that I got somewhere. But the 261 on, on my Social Security card, or my, my number, represents where that card was issued. I'm from Miami, Florida. 261 happens to be a Social Security office in North Miami Beach, Florida. Okay, And that number was uh, a part of it. Back when, when some of y'all were getting your number and they had never heard of a such thing as a computer. And so to, to identify where you were actually processed, they put that number. That's, the, the number is basically, it's obsolete for consistency. We all have nine numbers in, in, our, in our Social Security, but the only ones that really matter are those two in the middle and the four at the end. That becomes the next six digits. And then the last six digits are the banking code that they actually are going to give you from whatever system it's going to be, and of course, the Antichrist. Now, you know what? Is it going to be something different than that? It may be, but you know what? Sounds pretty good. But that's what's going to take place. And in order to buy or sell, you're going to have to have be scanned. You know, now they scan your, your card. Pretty soon it'll be your hand or just shoot your forehead which wouldn't be a bad thing for some of you. <laughs> but, now, but check this out now. God says, you drink of Babylon's wine, and you take the mark of the Antichrist, and you worship him, and God says, I'll make you drink of the wine of my wrath. And watch how the angel describes the torment of this wrath. First, it will be undiluted torment it will be undiluted torment you deify the beast and the wine of the wrath of God that you'll be forced to drink look at what verse 10 says will be poured out without mixture into the cup 
of his indignation. Okay, now, now listen real carefully. We're going to have to crank up the speed a little bit here. Okay, the cup of his indignation, get these references, according to Jeremiah 25 and verse 15, Jeremiah 25, verse 15, and Isaiah 51 and verse 17 is the cup of God's wrath and judgment against sin. The cup of his indignation is the cup of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And just for the record, y'all, it was that cup that Jesus was praying in Matthew 26, that cup that would pass from him. But he had to drink it in order to satisfy the justice of God in paying for our sins. Okay? The, the, the cup didn't have anything to do with him being afraid to die on the cross and he's not praying, oh, I don't want to die on the cross. No. He understood that he was going to be forced to drink the cup of his indignation. That he understood that he would literally become sin. And in becoming sin, for the first time in his eternal existence, he was going to be separated from his father and would experience the fullness of God's wrath and fury against sin. And you see, because he was willing to drink that cup. You see, when we call upon his name, what that means is we don't have to drink that cup ourselves. But what this passage is telling us, if you refuse the Lord Jesus Christ and the cup that he drank on your behalf, if you refuse that and you receive the Antichrist, what he says in verse 10 is the wine of God's wrath will be poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And without mixture means that you're going to get it full strength. It's not going to be watered down in any way. It'll be undiluted torment. And you see, the thing that is just so awful about that is that today the Lord Jesus Christ stands with undiluted grace that he wants to offer to you but what he's saying you flip me off with that grace that I'm offering you and you will get not undiluted grace at that point you'll get undiluted torment but not only will it be undiluted torment, number two, it'll be unequaled torment. Unequaled torment. The middle of verse 10 says, And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And notice what it says here. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Brimstone is the old English word for sulfur. And something interesting about sulfur, or brimstone as it were, is that when it's burned, what it does is it increases the temperature of a fire. What God's saying here, you do this, and you'll be cast into not just, a, not just fire, but fire and brimstone. In other words, he will increase the level of suffering. And guys, listen, I, I want you to know, I understand that this, this thing, when we get on to this realm, this is why I was saying what I was saying at the beginning. When we get on this thing of God's wrath and His judgment, I know that that is not intellectually attractive today. 
I know that that doesn't cause all of us to just sit here and say, ain't it grand to be a Christian, ain't it grand? No. I understand it's uncouth to talk about it. I know it makes me old-fashioned and a hellfire and brimstone preacher and all of that. But listen, I didn't invent this thing. This, this is not, you know, let's see, how can I freak people out? How, how can we win friends and influence people at First Baptist Church today? Yeah, let's do the fire and brimstone thing. Let's talk about the wrath of God. No. You don't hear many people talking about it today. And it's almost like there's this feeling that it, if we don't talk about it, it'll go away. No, you know what? If we don't talk about it, people are destined to go to this God-awful place. And, and it's, real, it, it, it's real popular right now. For, for people to talk about. In fact, it, it was a magazine just came out. Uh, the, I think it was U.S. News World Report. Could have been Time, Life. I, I don't know. It's been within the last six weeks. Came out talking about, you know, this whole biblical concept of this thing of hell. And you know, you know who are the people that don't believe it? The religious people of the world. And, and listen, you can rest assured, anytime you find somebody standing before people trying to renovate or air-conditioned hell, you can be sure that you're listening to somebody that's getting ready to go there. And, oh, no, that's, you know, that's sarcastic. You know what? Listen, it's the truth. And, and, this is not my invention. And you know, people are so funny. You know, I, I, you know what? I think the way that we ought to do this is I think we ought to do it the, the loving Jesus way. Why can't... Why can't pastors just be like the loving Jesus? And you know what? I'm with you. I believe that wholeheartedly. The loving Jesus spoke more about hell than any person in the entire Bible and spoke more about it than all of the rest of them combined. And the way that he described it is a place of eternal fire and judgment, a place where the worm dieth not, a place where people will beg and scream for one drop of water to cool their tongue and he he covered that over and over he, he the loving jesus talked more about that place than he did heaven so, so li listen i know that this is this is not what really causes us to get all cozy but we need to just we need to wake up and understand we're living in the last part of the last days. And the thing that is so scary, y'all, and this is why I ended the way that I did last week at our Easter service, what I would have said is that people that were in the room last Sunday, people that are in the room this Sunday, that have the opportunity that you have had to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you refuse that. What it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Again, this is not my invention. What it says is because you have willfully lied to yourself and rejected Jesus Christ. I mean, you're faced with the truth of the Word of God. And you say, I don't buy it. And he goes a little step further, and he talks about people who look at it and say, I don't want it. And you know why he says that people say, I don't want it? Because they have pleasure 
in unrighteousness. I don't want Jesus coming in and messing my life up. Having a pretty good time right now. Things are going along pretty smooth. And I just think he's going to be an interruption. And he says, listen, you lie to yourself about the truth. What he says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he will send you, God, holy God, loving God, will send you in the tribulation period strong delusion so that you will believe the lie of the Antichrist and you will take his mark. You say, well, I, I don't think that's fair. You know what? He's going to give you just what you want. If you want to lie, he says, that's cool. Now, but understand, I'm standing with undiluted grace to offer you. You flip me off. There'll come a time. You'll get exactly what you're asking for. And you will believe the lie. You will take the mark. And look at number three. Not only will it be undiluted torment, not only will it be unequal torment. Number three, it will be unending torment. And this is probably the freakiest part of all, because verse 11 says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Listen, the torment for those who receive that mark will never ever end. It will go on day and night for the rest of eternity. A million years from now, they'll still be burning. A billion years, a trillion years, a trillion trillion years. And we could go through and you can see in the rest of Revelation, for time's sake, we don't have to do it. But what you'd find out through the rest of the book of Revelation is that there is a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The devil is going to be cast into it. And the Bible says he will be tormented forever and ever. It says the beast and the false prophet will also be cast into it. And they will be tormented forever and ever. And every person in the tribulation period who dies and doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you die today in your sin, the Bible says that you too will go to this place and you will be tormented forever and ever and ever and ever. And you know what? If, if it weren't true, y'all, we wouldn't be going through all this today. I, what, what, am I, what do I have to gain by telling you this, by upsetting some of you? I have nothing whatsoever to gain in telling you this other than the fact that you may never come again. But you know what? I would rather you come this time and have to face truth and maybe what it would do is maybe jolt some of you to, to just listen to the claims of Christ and begin to look at this book and say, you know what, maybe it is time that I begin to listen to what the Spirit is saying in these last days in, in which we live. So that's the destruction of those who defy or deify the beast. And we'll do this quickly. Let's look in contrast at the destiny of those who defy the beast. And this is the fourth voice that John hears, the voice of the Spirit of God. And he gives a reminder concerning blessing. Now, the destiny of those who defy the beast is a destiny of blessing. Look at, look at verse 12. In contrast to those who take the Antichrist mark, he says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith 
of Jesus. And John says in verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write. You say, well, how do you know that, whose voice this is? All it says is a voice. Well, drop down to verse 13 real quick. It tells you, verse 13 says that the voice says, Yea, saith the Spirit. Okay, so no, notice what the Spirit says about the blessing of the destiny of those who defy the beast. First of all, the fact that they will be resisted. They will be resisted. The Spirit tells John in verse 13 to write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. And notice, as we've talked about before, these saints of the tribulation period will be resisted unmercifully by the Antichrist. They will be put to death for putting their faith in Jesus and obeying, God, and obeying God's command to not take his mark. But even in their death, he says, they will be blessed. Okay, now, now listen real quick. In, in Psalm 116, in verse 15, the psalmist said, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And listen, y'all, every person who has ever died in the Lord was blessed, right? Because what happens is you... You left this life, you closed your eyes in death, and the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Listen, man, precious is the, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because, man, they come right into his, his presence. You're blessed beyond measure. Paul said in Philippians 1.21 that to die is, is what? It's, it's gain. But what the Lord is telling us here in Revelation 14, 13, is that this time in the tribulation and from henceforth, in other words, from here on out, from this point on, what he's saying is it would be better for those who are in the Lord to die than to live. And, oh, oh, yeah. Now, now listen. According to Revelation 20 and verse 4, they'll have to have, these people who re, put their faith in Jesus and are obedient to him, and don't take the mark of the beast? Do you know what the price tag for that? You know how they're going to be resisted? You remember? Revelation 20, in verse 4, says that because they do that, they'll have their head lopped off by the Antichrist for that simple fact. They put their faith in Jesus, and they wouldn't receive his mark. And yet what John is saying, what, what John hears the angel saying, is that at this time it would be better to go through that and have your head lopped off than it is to live through the awful judgment and torment that is going to be pounding the earth in the final hours of the tribulation period. But they will, first of all, be resisted. Secondly, they will be rested. Verse 13 says, Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And again, this is in contrast to those who deify the beast. That those people will worship him, they'll receive his mark, and you know what? Because they do that, there's going to be a period of time where they're going to experience earthly rest, only to enter eternity and never, ever, ever, ever again, ever be able to rest. Those who defy the beast will go through the unbelievable labor every single day of being hunted down and persecuted and, and never finding any earthly rest and ultimately they'll have their head lopped off and once they do, they'll enter into blessed, eternal rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 says, There remaineth therefore a, what? a rest 
to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. And we saw earlier, talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7, when the Lord comes back and is, the Bible says to those believers in Thessalonica who were being troubled, he says, and you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord shall be revealed with fire and, and come to this earth in flaming judgment on those who know not Christ and obey not the gospel of God. They will be resisted, and yet he says they will be rested. And third and finally, they will be rewarded. The end of verse 13 says, And their works do follow them. And you know what, y'all? Now listen, you know, if you were to look down at those people in the tribulation period, these people who heeded the voice of that first angel, they feared God, and they were converted, they began to give, give Him glory because they understood the judgment was about to come, and they had not received the mark to that point. You know what? You look down at those people, and as they are being chased by the Antichrist all over this, this planet, you know what? They look like a bunch of idiots. They look like a bunch of fools. You'd look at it and say, man, it'd just be a whole lot easier if you just take the mark. And you see them being hunted down and beaten and, and tortured and get their head chopped off. And what it looks like is that God has forsaken them. But the end of verse 13 says that God ain't missing a trick. What he says is their works will follow them right out of this life and right on into the next where they will be rewarded because their works will follow them. And listen, do you realize that if you're saved this morning, do you understand right now that the same exact thing is true of you that's true of them in verse 13? Do you understand right now God isn't missing a trick in your life? Do you understand He knows every single thing that you're going through? He knows the persecution that you receive. He knows the trials you face. He knows the sacrifices you, makes, you, you, you make. And what He says is, your works are going to follow you and I'll reward you for that. Listen, He ain't missing nothing that's going on. But now listen, some of you are here today, and oh my goodness, You've never come to the place in your life where you have embraced solely the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You see, the issue is this. God is holy, and every single person on this planet is a sinner. And God says that the payment for sin is death. And so what God did, so that we didn't have to experience eternal death in this place that we've described, with this unbelievable torment, so that we didn't have to do that, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he came to this planet for the sole purpose of drinking that cup of the wrath of God's indignation. He took our sin upon him, and he paid the penalty for our sin. And now all he's looking for is for us to come to the place through the simple gospel where we will receive what he came to this planet to do. And we will believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day as the payment in full for our sin. And you see, when you'll come to that place in your life and you'll cease trusting in what you bring to the table or something that you've done religiously to make you in some kind of standing with God, when you'll just come to the place to where you'll say, God, I finally get it. 
I know there ain't nothing I can do to get myself to you. And I understand that you did everything that was necessary in coming to where we were as sinners. And you took my sin, and I believe that you died and buried and rose the third day as the payment for sin. And I trust that and that alone. Come into my life and be my Lord. At that moment, it's that simple. At that moment, he honors that faith. And he moves inside of your dead spirit. And by his spirit, he brings it to life. And that offer of his grace and mercy and love is offered today, undiluted man. I mean, he'll give you everything he's got. He already gave everything he got on the cross. And it's all available. But you do need to know. You walk away from that. I don't know. Rapture could be before we get out of the building. Could be 10 years from now. I doubt it. It could. But I do know this, and this is, this is a, an awful tragedy. I do know that once the rapture takes place, nobody here, nobody here is going to have any of the 144,000 come to you and give you the gospel because you already got it. That's for those who have never heard. That's for those who have never stiff-armed God because of the pleasure that they're having in unrighteousness. And, and again, we're not trying to back you in any corners. We're not trying to freak you out. You know what? That's the other side of it. This side of it is, you never really know what life is about until that vacuum inside of us is filled by the Spirit of God. The Bible says that what happens is, is, is the rivers of water come inside and there's joy that is there. So it's not all hellfire and brimstone, man. You know what? I, I got saved when I was 16 years old. The only regret I have is I didn't do it sooner. Isn't that your testimony? Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ stands with an open offer today. You can come and undiluted receive His grace against the backdrop of what you've heard today. And if you'd like to respond, I, I know when I was 16 and I came into a service like this, and we were at this point, I'm just telling you, man, God was speaking to me. The, the Bible says that the Spirit's job is to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and that's happening for some of you folks right now. And if, if that's what's happening, why not say yes to Him today? And find out what life is really all about. Have your eternal destiny, man, just nail down. You can nail that thing down today. Our pastors are going to remain on either side of the front of this room with an invitation that we offer to you today. If you've got questions, if you'd like to talk to somebody, th these men are positioning themselves here for you. If you're a lady, we'll get a lady to talk with you answer your questions. Nobody's going to coerce you. Nobody's going to make you do anything that you don't want to do. But we would love the opportunity today of being able to help you to know how you don't have to worry about anything that we've talked about here today. You can receive the Lord Jesus Christ today. Lord, I want to ask you,
to please do what we cannot do right now. I pray that you would, you would speak to the hearts of, of people in this room. I pray that they would respond in obedience to your command to repent of our sin. I pray that today people would experience the, the miracle of salvation. I pray even now that you would grant them the courage that's, that's needed to, to step out and talk to one of these men today about how they can nail this thing down once and for all. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that you would help us to see our position in these last days. And rather than being caught up with the things of this world, Lord, help us to be consumed with a passion to reach the people of this world while we still have the time. And Lord, every week as we, we come further and further into this period of time and we see your judgment as it's unleashed, I pray that the love that you put in our hearts, that you said is shed abroad in our hearts, I pray that you'd help us to love people who are outside of a relationship with you. We, we talked about people in the Roman Catholic system today. We pray for them, Lord, that somehow you would open doors for us to be able to not push a, a denominational tag or title, but to help them to see what Satan has done through this, this, this harlot system and how he uses it to blind people to the truth. Lord, give us opportunity to give the gospel and not fight, not contend, but to lovingly share the truth of your book with people that desperately need to hear it. And we ask these things for your glory's sake. Amen.